I'll take your scriptures and open to Matthew chapter 9. As you're uh, turning there, I just want to echo what somebody else said earlier today about the singing. We have such amazing talent and gifting in this church uh, and such dedicated servants uh, that we are led so well. That one song where there was harmony being done, I'm sure I'm using the wrong musical term, where there's harmony being done, was just a little taste of heaven for me. I just looked around and I thought, wow, that is so beautiful, singing to God for his glory in such harmony. So just thank you all that work um, and serve in the music ministry. You do such a beautiful job, and thank you for serving us so well. So the last several weeks, we've been looking at this text for what it can tell us about our approach to God, how we are to approach God. So far, we have seen that our approach to Christ must be in desperation. Uh, Just as the synagogue ruler and the, the woman that was bleeding and the blind men, they came with their need, a desperation, A desperation that makes you look outside of yourself for help. As John Bloom uh, wrote, the co-founder of Desiring God, we heard last week, if we don't feel desperation for God, we don't tend to cry out to him. And that leads to spiritual death. So we need a desperation to approach. Last week we noticed that our approach must also include faith. Remember what Alan Redpath wrote, faith is two empty hands held open to receive all from the Lord. Two empty hands. We come by faith alone with nothing in our hands, right? That great hymn hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's it. By faith alone we approach Christ. But there's a third critical element to our approach in Christ, and that is humility. I want you to listen for the peaks of that as I read through our text once again, starting in verse 18 in chapter 9. Here we read, While he, that is Christ, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Then he entered the house, and the blind men came into him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? 
And they said, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame throughout that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Please pray with me. Father God, we ask you to step forth and teach us. Be our rabbi once again through these words. Help us, Spirit, to understand them, apply them to our hearts, and change us by them. Dear Spirit, we want to be a changed people. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you visit the Holy Land, and maybe some of you have, and you follow in the footsteps of Jesus, as, as many people do. You can get a tour there and, and go to all the, the places where he was and, and the miracles that were performed there. If you do that, you see that wherever there is an important place or a miracle performed, there is a church. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, when, I, when I was there, there was a church that was over the archaeological dig where... Peter's mother-in-law was supposedly uh, healed. And it was suspended over the archaeological dig. If you go to Bethlehem, where, where Jesus was born, there is to the place where he was supposedly born, there's a church there too, the Church of the Nativity. And to go into that church, they intentionally built the, the door short, the lintel low. So that to go into the place, to approach the place where Jesus was supposedly born, you have to bow low. You have to come in low. The doorway was intentionally built that way in order to symbolize how a person should approach Christ with humility. And we see that same symbolic, humble approach here in our text, don't we? The bleeding woman who comes to Christ, how does she come to Christ? Basically on the ground. She, she literally crawled up behind him and touched probably one of the tassels, the four tassels that were to hang on a rabbi's uh, robe, to touch one of the tassels. She approached Christ on the ground. The blind men were by nature, by, by their handicap, humble. Think of a blind person's life before the modern age. Just think of that for a minute. There was no social programs to help. There was no American Disabilities Act. They were by nature of their handicaps so societally humbled. But I think that the, the best example we see here in Scripture of how we should approach Christ with humility is seen in the synagogue ruler's approach. Look at verse 18 with me. 
There God's word says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. He approached Christ on his knees, which which would have been something that people would have kind of noticed. This would be something people would say, wow, look at this guy. It's hard for us to understand the importance of this man today and the position and status of clergy today has been worn away by both secularism and scandal. According to Christianity Today, trust and admiration in the clergy has dropped 20% in the last 20 years. 44% of Americans trust or admire anybody in the pastorate. 44%. People place more trust in daycare workers, pharmacists, grade school teachers, and judges than they do pastors today. But 2,000 years ago in Israel, the synagogue was the center of Jewish life. It was the center of life. Everything orbited around the synagogue. Synagogue rulers were responsible for the physical setup of the synagogue. They were men of means and of status. They were important people in the Jewish community. People came to them, not the other way around. Thus, for the synagogue ruler to come, find this itinerant preacher, and kneel before him was the height of humility. He was intentionally lowering himself in order to approach Jesus. And in that way, he's a model for how we need to approach Christ, how we need to approach God in humility. Now, humility, it's interesting tends to be the flip side of of faith that we talked about last week. Faith encourages us in the confidence to approach Christ, to approach God, doesn't it? We have faith in Christ's blood to forgive our sins. We have faith in Christ's work as we approach God, not our own work. Faith is what fuels the confidence that we read about in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of our need. With confidence. It's with faith that we draw that confidence. Faith encourages us to approach God, whereas humility gives us the right reverence and fear of God. Do you see how they balance themselves out? Faith in humility. Humility in the knowledge that we are indeed new creations in Christ. That's what scripture tells us. Yet at the same time, we fight that battle, that Romans 7 battle with the flesh. The flesh is still with us. Our depravity is still there. We still fight that battle with original sin. In that knowledge of our depravity, is what humbles us. It should humble us. Gives us the kind of Luke 18 meekness and humility in our approach. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, and you can see what I mean there. In Luke 18, Jesus is telling a a list of proverbs. He's telling pro, I mean uh, parable after parable. And in Luke 18, verse 9. We see there he tells the parable 
of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Look with me there. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here we have two different approaches to God. The Pharisee. We see that there the Pharisee has no fear in approaching God. He comes right into the temple and goes right into the middle of the temple. He stands tall. He raises himself above others. Did you notice that? He points to his own good works. That's that's one approach to Christ. That is a way to approach Christ. And frankly, that's the approach that most of humanity takes. They look at their lives and see that they live better than most. They look at what they do, the good works that they do, and they consider it kind of grist for the salvation mill. They look at themselves as not as good as some, but better than most, right? But look at what Jesus says about that approach. He goes to his house unjustified. He leaves unjustified. Donald Barnhouse, the famous pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philly, said this, Christ sends none away empty, but those who are full of themselves. But the tax collector's approach was different. Look at how the tax collector approached. It was humble, like those we see in Matthew. He stood at a distance, not feeling worthy to approach. He bowed his head. Have you ever been so ashamed you can't look somebody in the face? It's kind of what he was feeling. He beat his chest, recognizing his guilt. And listen to what he said. Have mercy on me, a sinner. In this, we realize two things about the humble approach of Christ. First, you have to believe you're a sinner. When you approach Christ, you have to believe that you're a sinner. The tax collector believes himself not only a sinner, but if you look at the Greek there, it uses the definite article doesn't translate it that way because it wouldn't make much sense. Have mercy on me, the sinner. But that gives you a, a, a glimpse into how he felt about his sin, doesn't it? Kind of the same way Paul does in First Timothy when he writes, 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Is that how you feel about your sin? Is that how you feel about yourself? Is that how you approach Christ? That's what this tax collector is saying. His approach is filled with the understanding of who he really is. A sinner in desperate straits, desperate need. That's the lowly position that one must approach Jesus with. Second thing we learn here is the tax collector is asking for mercy. Asking for mercy. The British ocean liner, the Lusitania, as we all know, was struck with a torpedo from a German submarine on May 7, 1915. It appears that in an effort to minimize the panic, the captain, William Turner, created a false sense of assurance by telling passengers that the ship was all right. The ship was not going to sink. Although she was damaged, she was going to make it. That news quickly spread throughout the ship. And the passengers that were headed to the lifeboats, when they heard that, turned around and went back to their cabins. You see, the captain's words merely confirmed what the passengers already believed, or maybe wanted to believe, that no torpedo could cause that ship mortal damage. Of the nearly two passengers on that ship, 1,200 of them died. See, most people are like the passengers on the Lusitania. Most people in the world are like those passengers. They believe that sin exists. They believe they're not perfect. They believe that they do wrong. They, you talk to people. They, they, they know they do wrong. That they do damage to people. That they do damage to relationships. People realize this. If you ask them, they'll say, yes, I do lie. They know that adultery is wrong. They admit their anger gets them into trouble. But here's the difference. They don't think it's that serious. They they don't think it'll sink their ship. So they continue on life like the passengers on the Lusitania. And that's the tragedy, isn't it? Because it turns out just like the passengers who went back to their cabins. They die. They go down with that ship. Scripture tells us over and over and over again how deadly sin is. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, plants, that he will reap. For the one who sows of his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It says it in the Old Testament all over the place too. Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul that sins will die. If you want to know what the, the, the Old Testament version of Romans 6.23 is, it's Ezekiel 18.20. The soul 
whose sins shall die. What the Bible tells us is that the torpedoes of lying and of cheating and of anger and of lust sink the ship. One torpedo sinks the ship. One must humbly approach Christ, believing that sin mortally damages you. And that the ship is actually going down. That's what the tax collector believed. That's why he was approaching Christ right. That's why he left justified. He believed the serious and deadly position he was in. And he cries out for help. He cries out for mercy. Actually, the Greek word translated mercy there is the same Greek word that is translated elsewhere, propitiation. Propitiation, that word isn't used much today, but it's a great and deep and important theological word that we as believers need to know about. It means to avert God's anger. It means to to redirect God's justice. That's what this tax collector is asking by saying that. He's asking God if there is a way for his just and perfect anger to be placed on someone else. Can you not focus your punishment on me, God? He's crying out. And in 1 John 2, we learn that that is exactly what God does in Christ. There we read, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, in God's great mercy, God has provided someone who is willing to take the penalty for our sin. He's willing to take the punishment that is ours. And that person is Jesus Christ. Who lived a perfectly sinless life in order to be that perfect sacrifice. That's what the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to. Why did they have to take an ble- unblemished lamb? Why did they have to take a perfect sacrifice? So that one day they would realize that this man, Jesus, is unblemished. And then he willingly went to the cross and bore the death penalty for our sin. And if you cry out to God, if you say, God, I am the sinner, He averts his just anger and penalty from you to Christ. And you are saved. That's the promise in Scripture. That your punishment is placed on Christ's shoulders. Proverbs 28.13 tells us, Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Seems so simple, doesn't it? Seems so very simple when we think of it. Why don't all people approach Christ? If this is the way out, why doesn't everybody say, Oh, thank you so much, Jeremy, for telling me that? 
Why don't they jump all over it? Why do so many people walk around on a sinking ship believing that their sin isn't so serious? Because pride blinds us. Pride blinds us. That's what we see in the Pharise- with the Pharisee in Luke. His plied- pride blinded him. And that's what we see back in Matthew with the Pharisees around Jesus. Flip back there. Pharisees were not able to see who Jesus is, even with all the evidence. I mean, as I've said for the last couple of weeks, chapter 8 and 9, what are they? They're, they're Jesus actually putting his messianic credentials before people. He's, he's actually proving through the miracles who he is. And throughout, if you noticed, the scribes and Pharisees are there with him, watching. Back in chapter 8 and verse 19, we see there one of the scribes actually wanted to, to follow Jesus, right? And he challenges him there. We see scribes were quick to accuse Jesus of blaspheming when he forgave the paralytic's sins. Do you remember that? The Pharisees were there at Matthew's house questioning the the company that Jesus was keeping. And here, they were there when, when the demon was cast out and this mute man began to speak. They were probably in the crowds all, all along, watching all the miracles, watching all the miracles that Isaiah 35 says, this is how you'll know the Messiah when he does these exact things. Isaiah 35 says about the Messiah, when he comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame shall leap like deer and the tongue of the mute will sing. Yet when the mute speaks, what do the Pharisees say in verse 34? He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Why, why couldn't they see it? <laughs> it's as plain as the nose on our face. Well, not now with masks, but it's pretty plain. Why didn't they get it? Why didn't they understand? Why do two blind men see and all the sighted men are blind? Because of pride. There's an interesting and and kind of humorous story about Walter Cronkite. One day he was sailing down the Mystic River in Connecticut with its tricky channels and shallow water. And a boatload of young people going in the opposite direction were waving at him and shouting. Cronkite waved back and smiled because they thought they, they knew him. His wife said, did you hear what they were shouting? Cronkite said, yeah, they were shouting, hello, Walter. His wife said, no, they were shouting, low water, low water. Pride tends to deafen you to the truth. Pride makes you laugh at Jesus like those flute players did when he said, 
She's not dead. She's just asleep. Pride blinds you to the obvious truths like it did the Pharisees. For the Christian, it makes us doubt Scripture. The obvious things that God says in this word. For the Christian, it makes us think our sin isn't that bad. The torpedo won't sink the ship. It makes us take credit for what Jesus has done in us, doesn't it? It makes us upwardly mobile, is what it does. Henry Nouwen wrote, Everything in me wants to move upward. Downward mobility with Jesus goes radically against my inclinations, against the advice of the world surrounding me, and against the culture I'm a part of. Yet that's what Christ calls us to, brothers and sisters. He calls us to downward mobility. Everything in us and around us encourages us upwardly, encourages our pride. But scripture continually encourages humility, downward mobility. But what we must come to understand is that humility is the secret power of the Christian. For those kids, it's, it's like Iron Man's suit. It's like Thor's hammer. It's like Captain America's shield. Humility is our secret power. It's the skeleton key that unlocks the upside-down kingdom logic that we read over and over and over again in Scripture, which says the humble are exalted and the exalted humbled. Which says whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Which says, blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. It says if slapped on the right cheek, the upside down logic of the kingdom says what? Give them the other cheek. It says to live, what do you have to do? You have to die to self, exactly. It says to be wise, what does Paul say? You have to become a fool for Christ. It says, if the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So, so get in the end of the line, always, proverbially speaking. The upside-down kingdom logic of humility says to see Christ... You know what you have to do? You have to admit you're blind. I want you to listen to what J.I. Packer wrote in Rediscovering Holiness as conclusion. He wrote, We grow up into Christ by growing down in lowliness, offloading our fantasies of omnicompetence. We start trying to be trustful, obedient, dependent, patient and willing in our relationship to God. We give up our dreams of being greatly admired for doing wonderfully well. We begin teaching ourselves unemotionally and matter-of-factly 
to recognize that we will are not likely ever to appear or actually be much of a success by the world's standards. We bow to events that rub our noses in the reality of our own weakness, and we look to God for strength quietly to cope. He ends by writing this. It is impossible at the same time to give the impression both that I am a great Christian and that Jesus is a great master. Listen to that again. It is impossible at the same time to give the impression that both that I am a great Christian and that Jesus is a great master. So the Christian will practice curling up small so that the Savior may show himself great. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we have the courage to curl up small so that our Savior will see us, see, be seen as great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is hard for us to practice humility. We want to be in the front of the line. We want to be seen as great. We don't want to be humbled. We don't want to die. Spirit, all those things we need to do can only be done by your power. We implore you to help us. Help us to practice that superpower of the Christian faith that is humility. In Jesus' name, amen.